1992, a religious family prepared for the Armageddon. They clashed with federal government in northern Idaho. Where is the line between personal freedom and government authority? The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty, but some cross the hidden This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm here with my altruistic friend, Melanie. Oh, you come up with great <laughs> words, Becky. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. Let's dive into Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Hello, friends. I hope you are all doing well. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, I hope everyone's healthy and happy out there. Thanks for joining us. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is growing each week, so please keep sharing with friends and family and rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. And just a reminder to be sure you are subscribed and follow us on social media. Instagram is at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed, and you can find us on Facebook. We are now on TikTok as well. They do. Yeah, so you can find us there. I will tag us, and then we are also starting our YouTube channel. So this will be our first YouTube episode. This is a big deal. This is huge. So <laughs> here we are. So make sure that you're connected and we can reach you on all those platforms. Absolutely. Before we get started, we would like to offer you a heads up. Today's story contains details that might be difficult for some to hear. Though we always put great care and respect into each of our cases, the true stories do often explore physical violence, sexual violence, familial violence, suicide ideation, and other content that may be upsetting or triggering to some. Please take a moment to decide what's best for you. If you or someone you know needs help with emotional um, or crisis counseling and need resources, please dial 988 in the United States. Ask for help. You are not alone. Sure. First off, a huge thank you to PBS American Experience documentary called Ruby Ridge. I watched this a few years ago, and it is an incredible documentary. Have you ever seen American Experience? I haven't. It's like my favorite. I love it. The documentary features the actual agents, law enforcement, and, and also Sarah Weaver sharing the family side of the standoff. Watch it. It's amazing. So let's get into the story of Ruby Ridge. Yeah, the Bible tells us in Matthew 24, 16, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Jesus Christ said this to his disciples, referring to a time when the evil and corrupt would take over the temple of God and the earth as a whole. He warns us as disciples who sees this to like run for safety, literally into the mountains, like literally flee to the mountains to the north of Jerusalem. The mountains would provide protection and safety from the world. The Weaver family of Iowa wholeheartedly believed in this statement and took it literally word for word. Flee into the mountains. And that's exactly what they did. This is the story of the Weaver family and the 11-day standoff at Ruby Ridge. So Randy and Vicki Weaver met in 1970 while Randy was on leave from Fort Bragg in North Carolina. He was a Green Beret with the United States Army. And she was like a sweet, very religious young woman from his hometown. The couple dated long distance until Randy was discharged from the military in 1971. The couple married less than a month after he came home. The couple built their lives and started their family in Iowa. Vicki was a stay-at-home mom to their oldest child, daughter Sarah, while Randy worked at the local John Deere factory. Along came Sammy two years later, Rachel another two years later, and then Randy and Jackie became restless. Jackie was the spiritual leader in the family, while Randy was also very religious. 
They spent hours studying the Bible and believed each verse was to be taken word for word. Yeah, this is interesting to me because, and obviously we respect any way people choose to believe, but there are people who believe in the Bible and then there are people who believe in the Bible word for word and take it in a different context right. than some. I agree. So yeah, they were definitely those people that believed in believed in the Bible literally word for word. So kind of different from mainstream Christianity. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So as the family became more and more withdrawn from society and the mainstream culture, they envisioned a life far away from the cities and the towns surrounding them. Randy and Vicky's goal to live off the grid, far away from society. They believed the end of days was fast approaching. Television and newspapers reported wars and rumors of wars, financial collapse, high interest rates, a country with loose morals and increasing materialism. Yeah, think like Book of Revelation. That's what they like wholeheartedly believed in and was like happening around them. They rejected all of this, like meaning society, meaning, you know, the world, the, the culture in America, and they clung to their fundamentalist beliefs. Slowly, they began to sell off their worldly possessions and began gathering what they would need to be fully self-sustained. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine the fear that must have plagued them on a daily basis. They were just living in fear every day. They actually really believed that they were living in Armageddon. And I can't imagine, can you? That would be very stressful. So to actually believe that that's the reality you're living in with your small children, I cannot imagine that they fear the fear that they felt in like the base of their hearts. So sad. Yeah. And with that, they left. They left their home and their families and they fled to their mountaintop haven in Idaho, just as they had been instructed in the book of Matthew, quote, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. There is a big difference between believing the Bible and like taking each statement literally. Right. Like me and Becky are both Christians, but we don't take the Bible literally in every passage, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's like letter law versus the spirit of law, right? Located 10 miles from Bonner's Ferry, Idaho, and just 30 miles from the Canadian border, they purchased 20 acres of untouched land and started to establish their homestead. The Weaver family built their own home, a cabin on top of a rural mountain overlook. No electricity, no running water, no plumbing, no phones, yet they were happy. Did you do it, Mel? You know what I was thinking at the beginning of the sentence? I was like, oh, this actually sounds pretty good. And then it said no electricity, and I was like, I'm out. <laughs> nope, no plumbing, I'm out. I think I think all of it would be cool besides like no plumbing, no electricity. I need those basic necessities. I need the, water. Have you seen The Village? No. That movie? No. Okay, you need to you need to watch it. It's like, yeah, anyway, yeah. It's a scary movie. I don't watch scary movies. Oh, that's right. That is yeah. Most of it's not scary though. But like I'm good. I I would like I could be one of those homesteaders back in like the seventeen, eighteen hundreds. But I need antibiotics. Um, so just make sure that I have like the medical. <laughs> and you're good to go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is the part I couldn't do though. Vicky homeschooled the children. And I couldn't do that for my kids. So Vicky is amazing. She homeschooled her children and like prepared the meals from scratch while Randy kept up on like, of course, the manual labor, hunted and farmed. Um, the children helped and worked alongside their parents and like garden they had a huge garden 
and get this melt. Laundry consisted of a washboard and a wash tub. We're talking like old school. Nope. Can't do it. <laughs> Water was to be hauled day and night to the house. Firewood had to be chopped and hauled. Gardening had to be planted and harvested. The list just goes on and on, right? There was always something that needed to be done. It really was a hard life, but a life that they loved. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you have to respect them for like going and doing what they believe. I yeah. think that's really amazing. I think it's really cool when people like actually live their beliefs on a daily basis. The Weaver family were very familiar and comfortable with guns. Like guns were absolutely everywhere in their home. They were strictly taught gun safety at an incredibly young age. To the Weaver family, guns were, you know, a tool, a way of life. They served a purpose. They were used for, like, hunting and protection. And, you know, they used guns. Like, I use my KitchenAid. But they were very, very, very responsible. With all of this hard work day in and day out, the family also had great times. The children ran free across the entire mountain, and that's what I want. That's what I would love for my kids. Mm -hmm. Playing and exploring without worrying about stranger danger. They climbed trees, discovered caves, tracked animals, picked wildflowers for their mom. I mean, they were at peace. Their home on Ruby Ridge became sacred to them. It was their safe place in this tumultuous, scary world. Yet just 16 miles south of the Weaver family haven was a dark spot in the beautiful mountains and forests of northern Idaho. The Aryan National Complex, founded by Richard Butler, the complex was a meeting place and a home to different fractions of hate groups. It's unclear if Randy and Vicki Weaver knew the complex was located so close to their land. In my research, I actually couldn't find any Weaver family ties before their move to northern Idaho to the Aryan Nation or any other white supremacist hate groups. Yet, the Weaver family started to come down off of their mountain on occasion for social reasons. Yeah. The complex held big picnics and social gatherings for their believers. Sarah Weaver, the oldest of the Weaver children, remembers visiting the complex and it feeling like a little family vacation. The children were able to socialize with other kids their age. The adults mingled and talked with others and they ate great food and enjoyed their visits. To the kids, this was probably like Disneyland. Right. Like to see other kids. Yeah. But so personal note, though, <laughs> I don't care how desperate I was for social interaction I would never set foot, and Millie, I'm speaking for you as well, yes, I know you. you, we would never set foot on any complex that promoted hate or, you know, we're not going to go hang out with any Aryans. I honestly would rather have imaginary friends mm -hmm. than these people. So if you're offended, you are welcome to unsubscribe. <laughs> I mean, I've got a good idea, Becky. You want to hear it? Yeah, let's hear it. Why don't we just love God and love people? I think that's a great plan. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's yeah. do that instead. Yeah, that's, that's much easier. Yeah. So with that said, we don't know if the Weaver family purposely built their home in close proximity to the Aryan Belief compound, but we know they did visit the complex for social events as guests, not members. So we're not going to go into any of the beliefs of the Aryan Nation because it's, you know, terrible and false. But needless to say, it breeds contentment and hate, and it symbolizes all Mel and I are Randy and Vicky felt some pull to officially join, but they decided not to in the end. Many of the beliefs were contrary to what they believed, so they decided to go their own way, but still occasionally visit. So essentially, they would visit from time to time for social reasons only. Yeah. The Weaver children were exposed to hateful things while visiting the complex. The compound was full of KKK, Nazis, and just the worst of the worst people. 
The Aryan National Complex would even host events in which they would burn crosses. So I hate this, and I had to throw this in because, uh, like, my ancestors are Scottish. Like, we're from Clan Cameron from the Inverness in, like, northern Scotland. My family holds our Scottish heritage close to our hearts. In Scotland, a burning cross was, like, a very sacred, special thing. Do you know about this, Mel? I don't think so. That's really interesting. Like, burning a cross in Scottish culture was like a call to arms to defend the clan, like the family. Mm -hmm. People would gather around the burning cross and we would pray for strength and ask God to, like, protect them and their clan and their family at wartime. It was like a, a really, almost a spiritual practice yeah. in Scottish heritage. Right, and now they've made, now it's a symbol of hate, right? Yeah. The Aryan nation was and is a very violent anti-government group. Through the 80s, they planned and executed violent attacks on churches, cultural centers, minority neighborhoods, and government offices. The federal government wanted to infiltrate the Aryan National Complex for the safety of the country and its citizens. So they aimed to send in undercover agents to find out who was there, what they were planning, and their pretty much their day-to-day -day lives and associations. So in July of 1986, an informant started to infiltrate the social circles around the complex. Over, the, over time, in fact, actually it was years, the ATF planted and gathered intel at this very compound. Over some time, one of the informants became friendly with Randy Weaver when he would visit the compound. The undercover ATF agent represented himself as a racist, right-winged weapons dealer who had ties to motorcycle clubs across the country. Slowly and surely, over a long period of time, Randy shared with the informant that he and his family what they believed in and their desire to live separately from like the rest of society <laughs> yet randy had a problem the family did need a small amount of income to provide what they couldn't supply themselves he needed money yeah randy needed to make a little money to take care of his family the two men started to talk and they came up with an arrangement randy would provide the arms dealer aka the informant with two sawed off shotguns for a reasonable price so what's the deal with sawed-off shotguns? We looked it up because we didn't know anything about sawed-off shotguns. <laughs> um, so Anthony Foster explains on anthonyarms.com, he says, Sawed-off shotguns are illegal since they are easily concealable but fire shotgun shells. Their short barrels blast pellets over a wide radius, making them highly dangerous at close range. The NFA 36 restricts short-barrel shotguns but you can still acquire them with an ATF permit in some states. So Randy altered the weapons at his home in his shop and sold them, just the two sawed-off shotguns, to the ATF agent. Now, let's be clear. Randy was not someone who was heavily involved with unlawful gun sales. He sold two sawed-off shotguns for a little bit of money. Which obviously is against the law, right? It's yeah. illegal. Of course, but... I mean, it's safe to say that Randy Weaver is not a big-time criminal. Like, he's pretty much a religious zealot living with his family in peace on top of a mountain. Right. In June of 1990, Randy learned the true identity of his so-called friend, the informant. The ATF then contacted him and threatened Randy Weaver. They claimed he could be thrown in jail, his house and property would be seized, his family would be left destitute. He could lose everything he had in his life. Or... Randy could work as the informant for them, the ATF. The ATF wanted him to bring them intel and evidence of crimes within the Aryan nation. 
Randy refused, so the ATF filed gun charges against him. So, like, let's take a break here. What are you thinking, Mel? Because I can tell on look on your face. That would be a hard decision to make, right? Like, I think if you're working as an informant, you're putting yourself in danger, but also you might lose everything if you don't. Uh, the part that gets me with this story, and of course, I was not there, but this man is living his life with his family, and he's not involved with any illegal activity. Right. And I feel like the ATF agent almost roped him in. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Of course, he's a big boy. He made that decision. But if it wasn't for this informant, I don't think that Randy would have been involved in anything illegal. Like, was it entrapment? Yeah, it, it almost is entrapment. And again, he's a big boy. He made a bad decision. But I just, I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah. In January of 1991, the Weaver family, Randy, Jackie, and their three children, were driving down a mountain road when they came across a broken-down car with a couple standing outside of it. It was freezing cold in northern Idaho, so Randy and Jackie hopped out to help the couple. So nice of them to stop. The second they approached the couple, Randy and Vicky were restrained and forced to the ground, which was covered in ice and snow. The couple on the side of the road were two ATF agents who were planted there to apprehend the Weavers. All of this took place with their three young children watching. Randy and Jackie were hauled off to jail. Can't let in front of the kids. No. After posting bail by putting their home and acreage up as bond, Randy and Jackie had a family meeting with their kids. The Weaver family had their backs against the wall. If Randy loses his trial, they lose their family home and land. This has only got to make like their distrust and disdain for the government grow even more. Essentially, the Weavers were living their lives on a mountain, like alone, not hurting anyone, just doing their thing. And then the ATF informant gets Randy to solve some shotguns, and now he's just involved in this whole huge mess. Yeah, and of course, like I said before, Randy Weaver is a big boy. He made this decision to do it. Right, for sure. But I get what you're saying. Like, this is his life has just kind of been torn apart. Right. I mean, was it a good decision to, like, break the law and solve the shotguns and give it to these racists? No. No, 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 it was not. Bad idea. Was it a good decision to bring your family for picnics with Nazis? Uh, of course not. Right. But, like, I can see how the Weavers felt somewhat set up in this situation. Yeah, with all this, like, hatred of the government fueled with their belief in the end of days, this is a recipe for disaster. No. Right. It's almost like poking a sleeping bear or, like, smashing a hornet's nest. Would it have been better to leave them alone? Probably. Probably just leave them alone on their mountain. Yeah. Vicki Weaver was very involved in leading the family. She was the family's spiritual leader, and Randy definitely looked to her for guidance. They were really a team in decision-making. A lot of times in these fundamental groups, the women are shunned. You know, their their opinions are not needed. Vicki was the brains of this operation, kind of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Vicki held the same beliefs and the same resentments as her husband. During this time, Vicki wrote two letters to the U.S. Attorney General in Boise. She addressed the envelope to, quote, to the servants of the Queen of Babylon. Yeah, again, think Book Re- book of Revelations, right? Vicki yeah. believed in signs. They moved to Ruby Ridge because she had a recurring dream of their family living on a mountaintop away from the evils of the world. She was ready to fight for her and her family's lives. She believed, she believed in her heart that they were all in danger. 
She wrote the following in the same letter to the AG, quote, The stink of your lawless government has reached heaven. Whether we live or whether we die, we will not bow to your evil commandments, end quote. Yeah, she's, she's got some strong opinions. For sure. Yeah. On February 19, 1991, Randy Weaver failed to appear in federal court. He had been charged with possession and transfer of an illegal firearm, just the, the two side-off shotguns. After failing to show up, a few days later on January 22, 1991, the court assigned Randy Weaver a defense attorney, and over the next month, the attorney tried to encourage Randy to come to court, but he refused. So, on February 20, 1991, uh, side note, that was my 11th birthday, <laughs> U.S. District Court Judge Harold Lyman Ryan issued a bench warrant for failure to appear in court, and Randy Weaver's case was turned over to the U.S. Marshal Service. He was now considered a fugitive. And you know, if you listen to all of our podcasts, we're big fans of the fugitive. We love the fugitive. <laughs> so let's stop right there and take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Big thank you to our sponsors. Let's get back to our story. Randy Weaver is now considered a fugitive. It was the U.S. Marshal Service's responsibility to bring Randy Weaver to court. So he could answer to the charges, like nothing more, nothing less. Just bring him to court. It doesn't mean he's guilty, but he did need to stand for his charges. So the first thing the U.S. Marshals did was to perform a threat assessment. Randy Weaver didn't seem like he was someone who would run. You know, he had roots in Idaho. He had a home. He had a close family. Yet that same threat assessment showed he and Victoria were very principled people and would very much stand up for what they believed in and their cause maybe with their lives. And remember, Randy was a retired Green Beret. Yes, they don't want to mess with a Green Beret, and they are very principled. They believe in what they believe strongly. Mm -hmm. So to the marshals, they knew he was more than capable to stand his ground. Was the Weaver family just a family living out in the middle of nowhere? Or were they a family that was a danger to their country and the community surrounding them? That was the big question. So Randy and Vicki Weaver made the decision together they would not leave their mountain. They refused to come down until the government cleared up the legal mess that they had created. So they dug in their heels against the U.S. government. That's kind of a David and Goliath. If we're referencing the Bible a lot, yes. they've got a David and Goliath situation. Through summer and winter, the family stayed there for months, spending their days reading, playing games, writing. In fact, during this time, Vicki and her fourth child, a little girl named Elisheba, at the cabin without any medical care. Oh man, that is one tough woman. Very brave to do that. Like having a baby up there in total isolation. Yeah. This was a hard time for them. Winters are brutal in northern Idaho. I mean, in Idaho in general, but then northern Idaho? Yeah. What are they, like 30 miles from the Canadian border? The family seriously spent all day and night for weeks isolated in their home together. During this time, the U.S. Marshals were not just wasting time waiting for the family to give up. Marshals interviewed dozens of people who knew Randy Weaver, trying to get a feel for the man himself. They asked those who knew Randy and Vicki best what their reaction would be if the marshals went and knocked on the door. They all agreed that was a terrible idea. The Weavers were committed and they would refuse to leave. The marshals stayed away, but they were able to get pretty close to the family on occasion. In fact, two U.S. marshals made contact with Randy Weaver under the guise of looking at property in the area. The officials had their hands tied. They were in a very precarious situation. 
they needed to enforce the law. This man had been summoned to federal court. Like, this isn't just a parking ticket. This is a big charge. The United States is a country of laws. Yeah. Um, side note, why didn't they just grab him when they were pretending to be interested in real estate? I don't know. We wouldn't be talking about the story right now. I don't know. Yeah. The man needed to be brought in front of the federal judge for the charges against him. I 100% agree. Yet, they were very, very, very concerned on how to do so. They were quoted saying, quote, We don't want to go up there and get in a gun battle with kids. In addition to the pressure from the top, the press had caught wind of what was happening and they jumped on it. It was humiliating for the government agencies, right? One news headline read, The desperado, even the feds, are scared to arrest. During the last week in March of 1992, the U.S. Marshals began to set up motion-censored cameras surrounding the Weaver cabin to get a better read on the family. Who was all there? Who was carrying guns? What are they spending their days doing? Etc. So they discovered seven people living in the cabin. Randy Weaver, 44, and his wife Vicki Weaver, 43. Then they had their four children, Sarah, 16, Sammy, 14, Rachel, 10, and baby Elisheba Weaver, five months. Also, Randy had a close friend living with them as well, Kevin Harris, who was 24. A couple of months later, in May of 1992, Randy Weaver gave an interview and stated publicly, quote, I don't care what you do. I'm not coming off the top of my mountain. Probably not the smartest thing to do, Randy. Yeah. That's practically flipping the bird at the federal government. Yeah. The U.S. Marshals inched closer and closer to the Weaver family over time. They brought in their special surveillance team. They were hoping to find a location and a time to safely arrest Randy Weaver without any conflict with weapons. Sarah Weaver, the oldest Weaver child, remembers the feeling of being watched and like skeptical of any friends who came to visit the family and bring them supplies. They didn't know who was with them or who was against them. They were just so isolated. Yeah. On the morning of August 21st, 1992, around 11 a.m., the U.S. Marshals approached the Weaver home with two teams. Uh, there were six Marshals total. They entered the property through the South Logging Trail until they came to a fork in the road. The two teams split at the Y. So the surveillance team traveled further up the mountain. So they had like a view of the Weaver home from above. The team consisted of U.S. Marshal David Hunt, Joseph Thomas, and Frank Norris. Their goal? Just updated surveillance. Nothing more. The other three marshals, Art Roderick, Larry Cooper, and Bill Dagan, made up the reconnaissance team. They set their path closer to the home. They again were just there for surveillance reasons. So the trouble started when the Weaver family dog, a yellow lab named Stryker, began to bark and bark and bark and bark and bark. The dog became more and more intense and wouldn't stop sounding the alarm. I'll tell you, again, I'm referencing you to the PBS American Experience documentary. They have an audio of all this, and the dog is freaking out. So I bet. Well, he's not used to having anyone besides the family around, so if anybody gets close, I can imagine that would freak him out. Randy Weaver, his son, 14-year-old Sam, and friend Kevin Harris set out to see what the dog was reacting to in the woods. They had hoped it was game. The family had just run out of meat, so they were hoping to be able to replenish that supply. While chasing after the dog in the woods, the two groups of men, the Weavers and the U.S. Marshals, met in the clearing at the Y in the road. Each man held a weapon. The Marshals, dressed in full camo, each held an M16. 
The weavers were each armed with a shotgun. They faced each other, and they all held their breath. The silent forest of Ruby Ridge suddenly rang out gunshots that could be heard miles away. One, then another, then more. Around 20 shots pierced the peaceful terrain. The women back at the Weaver cabin and the U.S. Marshal surveillance team made their way toward the gunshots. The Weaver's family story is that they thought they were chasing deer into the woods with Kevin Harris, Sammy Weaver, and Randy Weaver when they ran into the men dressed in fatigues with their faces painted. They said they were stunned and they were scared. Stryker, the dog, was barking furiously when Officer Art Roderick shot and killed the dog. Sammy Weaver, who was just 14 years old, had just watched a man shoot and kill his dog. Upset, he yelled, You killed my dog, you SOB, and opened fire on the marshals. Not surprisingly, the U.S. marshals had somewhat a different story. The marshals said the two groups saw each other at the fork in the road, and the marshals identified themselves and called out an order of surrender. Now, that's a huge difference. Right. Don't you think? Yeah. At that moment, Kevin Harris allegedly dove for cover and shot Marshal Billy Dagan. Just seconds later, Marshal Cooper shot and killed Sam Weaver. He was just 14 years old. The surveillance team reached the fork in the road and began life-saving measures on Marshal Dagan. He was still alive. He looked up at his friends and fellow marshals. Seconds later, he died. The Weaver women met Randy Weaver as he ran back to the house. Sarah, the oldest Weaver child, remembers her father coming back to the cabin alone. She wondered, where was Samuel? Kevin was just a few steps behind Randy. He told Sarah that Sam had been killed. Randy told Vicky that her only son, Samuel, had been killed. The mother was obviously distraught. Her child had been gunned down. She kept repeating to Randy and Kevin, we have to go get him. We have to go get him. We aren't leaving him there alone. The adults left and returned later, carrying the body of 14-year-old Samuel Weaver. He was shot once in the elbow and once square in the back. The family grieved together for young Samuel. U.S. Marshal Dave Hunt, leader of the surveillance team, hurried down the mountain to radio in for help. He told officials about Marshal Dagan's death and requested all the help he could get on Ruby Ridge. As we all know, cops don't like when other cops are killed. Do you think that this could have played a part in the divide between law enforcement and the Weaver family? I mean, absolutely. Cops do not like cop killers. Right. And, you know, both groups, law enforcement and the Weavers, lost someone they loved in that in that shootout. And sure, on both ends, the divide, like, grew even wider at that moment. The cops must have had, like, somewhat of an emotional reaction. And we know the family would definitely have an emotional reaction over the death of this child. I mean, he's a child. I mean, it seems like both groups really started to close ranks at this time. So this case, you know, started as an ATF case, and then it grew to a U.S. Marshal fugitive hunt, and now it grows even larger. Mel gets turned over to the FBI. The FBI called in their hostage rescue team, the superstars of this organization. They are like the best of the best of the best SWAT officers. The HRT is trained to come in when a regular, highly trained SWAT team isn't enough. These guys know how to take care of a situation. They flew into Idaho from Quantico, and the FBI appointed Eugene Glenn of the Salt Lake City FBI office as site commander. So it, it's scary enough to think about having a SWAT team after you, but now you're getting, like, 
the most highly trained SWAT team in the country. That's the scariest thought. Yeah. So the HRT, short for Hostage Rescue Team, were told they were going in after an armed neo-Nazi family that had already been involved in a deadly gun battle. Yeah, this statement is true, technically, kind of, to a point, but they may have not completely understood the details and the history of the standoff. That's me just guessing, but I kind of feel like they were brought in hot. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. They believed they were entering like an armed firefight. So because of that, a surrender warning did not need to be called out upon engagement. In essence, the agents are ordered to open fire when they see any armed adult. And the weavers are always armed. Yeah. According to the Department of Justice rules of engagement for the Ruby Ridge incident, and from a sworn statement from Agent Glenn, the site commander, the team members were given the following directive. So this is, these are all quotes from an official document. So number one, quote, if any adult in the area around the cabin is, is observed with a weapon after the surrender announcement has been made, deadly force could and should be used to neutralize the individual. Quote, if any adult male is observed with a weapon prior to the announcement, Deadly force can and should be employed if the shot could be taken without endangering any children. Quote, if compromised by any dog, the dog can be taken out. And last quote, any subjects other than Randy Weaver, Vicki Weaver, Kevin Harris presenting threat of death or grievous bodily harm, FBI rules of deadly force apply. Deadly force can be utilized to prevent the death or grievous bodily injury to oneself or that of another. And then there was a small change to the original orders. The rules of engagement was modified from adult to adult male to exclude Vicki Weaver after consultation with Site Commander Glenn because Vicki Weaver was not seen at the site of Dagan's slaying. So with the new rules of engagement in place, the very next day, a team of 10 agents, all trained snipers, surround the cabin. And I think it's important to understand, like, under these rules of engagement, they did not need to call out to identify themselves and to give any type of warning. It's like, if you have a shot, take it. Sarah told PBS American Experience, inside the cabin, the family was just trying to start another day. They were trying to comprehend what happened yesterday. Samuel was dead, shot and killed by the U.S. government. Randy stood up and headed to the front door. He told his family he was going to go see Samuel one last time. Little Sammy's body was laying at, in the family's shed. Randy Weaver, Kevin Harris, and daughter Sarah Harris headed outside towards the shed. They heard shots as soon as they stepped outside. Sarah ran towards her father and saw that he had been shot in the back with a bullet exiting through his armpit. Vicky opened the front door and yelled to see what happened. Randy shouted back to her that he had been shot, and Vicky started to scream, telling everyone to get in the house quickly. With her mother standing next to her and holding the baby, Sarah pushed her injured father through the door when she heard a loud boom and felt something spray across her face. Her mother dropped. Sarah looked down and realized her mom had been shot and killed instantly and the something that sprayed across her face was her mother's tissue and blood. The bullet traveled through Vicky's head and then hit Kevin Harris directly in the chest. Randy picked up baby Elishaba and closed the door. 
Vicky was killed by a sniper from 200 yards away. She was holding her 10-month-old baby, standing on her own front door threshold. FBI and U.S. Marshals Base Camp was just two miles away from the Weaver's home, but a world away. They couldn't see what was happening at the cabin. Next to their base camp, friends of the Weaver family and reporters from across the country began to gather. Each day, each hour, the gathering of people grew. The reporters and friends watched as dozens of military-style vehicles drove by. Mel were talking Humvees, armored personnel carriers, even a battle tank. As news traveled down the mountain, the family, friends, and perfect strangers turned against law enforcement. The public learned about the death of Samuel Weaver, but not yet the death of Vicki Weaver. So they don't even know that Vicky's passed yet, just Samuel. The sheer thought of a 14-year-old dying from gunfire from a trained sniper and U.S. Marshal is a horrific thought. They cried, they picketed with signs, they screamed, they yelled, they even spit, and they grieved together. Law enforcement stood stoic behind the crowd of crick barriers. They endured the harassment in silence. I hate that thought. Because we back the blue. We love police. I know. But this whole thing is just so... Oh, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And there's just no getting out of it in a good way at this point. No. Mm -mm. Government officials were forced to move the main camp away from the demonstrators to an open field about a mile off of the road. This field looked like a military outpost. The vehicles, the tents, even helicopters landing and taking off. It looked nothing like a field in northern Idaho. Like, think of what you see in the movies when, like, you see, like, an, in Afghanistan, a small military base. This is exactly what it looks like. Wow. The FBI hostage rescue team had obviously failed at their intention of contacting and communicating with Randy Weaver. So, the FBI crisis negotiation team took over the operation. Before the negotiators arrived, the HRT had been trying to communicate with a bullhorn, like essentially yelling at the cabin hour after hour. Remember, this cabin had no phone, along with no electricity, no water, no plumbing, nothing. So all they could think of using is a bullhorn. Not surprisingly, the technique did not work with Randy Weaver. Well, the CNT took over the bullhorn communication and tried to appeal to Vicki Weaver not knowing that she had been killed. They offered food, even pancakes for breakfast to the children. Little did they know, their attempt of communication with Vicky only stoked the fires of hatred and pain for Randy Weaver. He thought the FBI was taunting him about his wife's death. I mean, they would call out to her, Vicky, we've got pancakes for your kids, not knowing that she is lying dead in their home. I can see how that would feel like they were taunting you. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man, this is getting bad. The family sat around Vicki Weaver's body as they listened to the FBI on the bullhorn. At one point, Randy Weaver lost his temper and began shouting out of the cabin. He screamed towards the bullhorn that they had shot and killed his wife, and he called them vulgar names. He loved his wife and his family and treasured their safety, security, and privacy above all. Yet he had lost all of what he valued. Everything negative Randy believed about the government had come to pass. So, of course, as he's yelling out the door, they can't hear what he's yelling, right? No, I mean, these snipers were shooting at 200 yards yeah. away. So they're, they're he's back. He's just yelling. It was just himself. Yeah, yeah. It was his emotions, of course. 
So the CNT, again, not knowing that Vicky had died, addressed their communication towards Vicky because they thought of her as like the smart, strong, very influential woman. They thought she would be the only person to help Randy Weaver out of this situation. Little did they realize she lay dead on her own kitchen floor. In the meantime, down at the bridge where press and civilians gathered, tensions were escalating by the hour. Richard Butler, who was founder and leader of the Aryan Nation, seemed to really be enjoying the spotlight he was getting. But of course he's going to seize his opportunity to get to get the word out. Different racial and radical groups began to gather in hopes of showing support and even assisting Randy Weaver. A group of skinheads attempting to smuggle guns and ammunition up to Randy Weaver even showed up. Yeah, thankfully they were caught and the guns were confiscated and removed from the tent situation. Law enforcement was just trying to maintain control of the groups that seemed to be heading towards more aggression and more violence. The media did try to aid law enforcement, though, knowing that the Weaver family's only connection to the outside world was a small radio that was battery-operated. They hoped to get a message to the family. Famous radio personality Paul Harvey offered his national radio show to assist. Mel, do you remember Paul Harvey? I think I might have been too young. I remember Paul Harvey. Do you? Okay. Paul Harvey himself made a heartfelt plea to Randy Weaver. He told him about a phone that the FBI had left for him just outside the cabin in hopes to begin a dialogue. He was assured that no one would shoot at him and they just wanted him to grab the phone. Mr. Harvey also offered to provide a skilled attorney to represent Randy Weaver with a plea of self-defense against the death of U.S. Marshal Dagan. The entire nation was gripped. Americans wanted to see what would happen on a mountaintop in rural northern Idaho. The phone sat and sat and sat. The family didn't trust anyone. Meanwhile, the Weaver's family back in Iowa shared with the press a different view of the Weaver family. They spoke of a close religious family that just wanted to live in peace alone in the Idaho wilderness. They were not a family of white supremacists was a thirst for violence. The media, along with the people across the country, started to see the Weaver family in a much different light, a sympathetic light. The FBI and U.S. Marshals found themselves in an extremely sticky situation. Darned if they do and darned if they don't, right? They had over 400 federal agents working on the capture of one man, Randy Weaver. It's crazy and like, to stop this story really quick and think about how this has like escalated and escalated and escalated this started off with a small warrant to come and just show up at court yeah just that so government agents had a choice either they retreat and leave the mountain in which case they look weak and fail to follow through on a federal judge's order or They go on the offensive and look like utter monsters attacking a family in their own home in front of the entire nation. I mean, they really were at this point in a lose-lose fight. Absolutely. The FBI finally realized they needed help. They needed to figure out a way to communicate with Randy Weaver. But Randy Weaver obviously hated the FBI. He hated the government. He would not communicate. So they brought in someone Randy would listen to. And let's take our last break. Thank you again to our sponsors. Now back to the story. So the FBI needed to bring in someone, third party, a person Randy Weaver trusted, 
Enter kind of the hero of our story, Lieutenant Colonel Bo Gritz. Get this, this character of John Hannibal Smith from the A-Team was based on Colonel Bo. Lieutenant Colonel Bo Gritz is what you think of when you think of like an American colonel, right? He's big, he's powerful, he speaks with authority, he can be extremely intimidating, yet someone who like I imagine can give really good hugs. Yeah, he really is. He's quite the character. Lieutenant Colonel Gritz served from 1959 to 1979. He served in the Vietnam War and has made it his life's mission since retiring from active duty to rescue POWs. He's an extremely decorated soldier, three silver stars, two legions of merit, the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Soldier's Medal, four bronze stars, two purple hearts, and 26 air medals. This guy is amazing. Yeah, he really is. Colonel Bo, as he is affectionately called, went to the base camp site and traveled straight up to the Weaver's cabin. He got out of the vehicle and walked straight to the cabin front door. He identified himself and announced, I'm here. Randy, who must have been surprised, peeked out through the window and invited him right into the family cabin. Randy told Colonel Bo that they had killed Vicky. Colonel Bo tried to comfort the man who lost his only son and wife in a matter of days. The children, Sarah, Rachel, and Elisheba, also sought comfort from Colonel Bo. When Colonel Bo returned down the mountain, he announced to law enforcement that they had really screwed up the situation. Then he broke the news. He said, quote, Randy's been shot. Kevin's been shot. Vicky's been shot and she's dead. The FBI had no clue they had killed Vicky. The officers and agents were devastated. How had this situation completely unraveled? The FBI had to make a public announcement at the next press conference. They knew that this was not going to be easy and America was going to be furious. When the words were spoken about Vicky's death, the media actually gasped so loud. Again, it's on American experience. You can see it for yourself. No one could believe that Vicky had lost life. The bullet that killed Vicki Weaver had passed through her brain and entered Kevin's chest. The bullet then tore through his armpit and exited. It missed his heart by mere centimeters, and he was left critically injured. Kevin begged for Randy Weaver to put him out of his misery. He was suffering so much that he had lost his will to live. The next day came, and Colonel Bo went up to the mountain to talk to Randy Weaver again. He told Randy that Kevin must go to the hospital or he would die soon. Colonel Bo knew about artillery wounds and he could tell Kevin wouldn't like couldn't last much longer. So at first, Randy Weaver refused, but Colonel Bo did not give up. This is not a man that gives up. He told Randy in a known certain term that if he didn't let him take Kevin down the mountain, then his blood, Kevin's blood, would be on Randy's hands. Randy Weaver finally agreed, and Kevin Harris was taken down the mountain and was given emergency medical treatment and transported by helicopter to Spokane, Washington. After Kevin was in the hands of medical care, Colonel Bo returned back to the cabin with a body bag. He entered the cabin and patiently waited as he witnessed the Weaver family say a final goodbye to the body of their mother and wife. She had been laid out on the kitchen floor for several days, and she needed to be buried. Colonel Bo recalled Randy Weaver weeping and holding his girls as they said their goodbyes. This is so heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. The final morning of the standoff, Colonel Bo arrived early in the morning and Randy met him at the door. 
He told his friend that he and his daughters had prayed all night and that they had decided to stay at the cabin and not surrender. They believed that if they left their home, they would be shot on sight and killed. Colonel Bow, with carrying emotion and with stern authority, said he refused to accept that answer and he refused to believe that Randy would give up. Colonel Bow told Randy Weaver that he had carried his bride off of this mountain and Randy could not quit on him after what they had been through together the last few days. Again, this is a man that speaks with authority. Right. Mm -hmm. Randy stared back at Colonel Bow. Finally, he spoke. He called to his girls behind him without breaking eye contact with Colonel Bow. He said, quote, Girls, get your things. We are going to go down the mountain with Colonel Bow. Sarah recalled her fear the second she stepped out into the sunshine. Instead of relief and a feel of freedom, she was almost paralyzed with fear. She fully expected to be gunned down the minute she left the safety of the cabin. The family held hands and allowed Colonel Bow to lead them down the mountain. They were taken to the government's base camp headquarters. The family was overwhelmed to see the sheer amount of soldiers and law enforcement involved in the operation. The surviving Weaver children were met with relatives who had been given temporary custody. In 1993, Kevin Harris and Randy Weaver were tried for first-degree murder for the death of Bill Dagan, the U.S. Marshal who was killed during the same incident the Sanding Weaver was killed in. Both men were acquitted after the longest jury deliberation in the history of the state of Idaho. Interesting. Wow, that's crazy. That would be a really hard jury to be on, I feel like. Defense attorney Jerry Spruce accused the ATF, U.S. Marshals, and others of criminal wrongdoings. Randy Weaver was found guilty of violating his bail terms and for failure to appear in court. These charges were the original charges of why the U.S. Marshals went after him. He served 14 months total. All of this for just that one charge is just ah, insane. Two years later in 1995, the Weaver family sued the U.S. government for the death of Sammy and Vicki Weaver. The lawsuit was settled for $3.1 million in damages. Randy Weaver died on May 11, 2022 at the ripe old age of 74. The FBI now uses the story of Ruby Ridge as a training tool of what not to do. Wow. Like, where do we start with this? There's a lot to, like, unpack. There are just so many poor choices on everybody's side in this situation, right? The whole thing could have been avoided if Randy had just turned himself in, if that original officer hadn't used entrapment to get him to commit this crime. The government, oh, there are so many bad choices just on top of each other and just led to this horrific incident. It was just one bad choice after another, like all these building locks. Yes. It's still, and, you, and you're absolutely right that there were poor choices made on both sides. Uh-huh. For sure. Yes. I mean, why did they believe that, like, such force was needed? Randy Weaver had no prior record. He sold two sawed-off shotguns. That's not like exactly a criminal mastermind, right? Or like a drug cartel that just needs to be taken out. I completely agree. I have no clue. I wonder if they just thought because he was so close to the Aryan Nation that they assumed he was more part of it than he was. Yeah, I think that there were a lot of assumptions yeah. about this family. And and I understand because there are extremists out there you know, that are a threat. 
I agree. To our country, to, to their communities and everything. But I don't think the Weavers were one of those families. No. And his crime was like pretty much done under coercion, right? We've talked about that. He'd like never been involved with anything illegal, gun trade until this informant like it's like, hey, I have a way you can make some money. Yeah, exactly. And offered it to him. Yeah, and, and let's take a second. Raise your hand if you are okay with a super sniper FBI agent shooting a woman while she holds her 10-month-old baby in her own doorway. Anyone? The lack of responsibility in that sniper is astounding mm-hmm. to me. Like, why would you take a shot yeah. of a woman holding a 10-month-old baby? With that said, like, the law is the law, right? Like, everyone knows we shouldn't be involved with illegal weapons. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So let's not hang out with racists, shall we? Like, if they wouldn't have gone down to the Aryan Nation compound, we wouldn't be telling this story. Yeah, I mean, they would have lived happily ever after on their mountain. Yeah, exactly. Randy Weaver definitely made some bad choices, and he may have needed to be held accountable for those choices. But the amount of force put on his family just doesn't quite seem right to me. While researching this case, I came across a fantastic quote. I think this sums it all up. This is from author Jess Walter. He stated a quote, People focus so much on who is to blame. But if you look at what happened and how many times it could have been inverted and avoided, how many mistakes had to be made and how many times both sides would multiply those mistakes. The question of who is more to blame... The question of who is more to blame is less interesting to me than the question of how an all-American Iowa family ended up with these beliefs and how did the government end up treating them like they were a group of armed terrorists. Yeah, I mean, he's right. The better question is, how did this get so out of control? Hopefully, when this happens again, it can be better resolved and hopefully it won't happen again. It sounds like they're using it as a training, so hopefully they know to to handle it different. But yeah, absolutely. And and I, I do gotta give them props for being like, We screwed that one up, guys. Yeah. So let's not do it again. Yeah. So now let's get on to our Rocky Mountain Redemption, shall we? I need a good redemption. Don't this was a crazy story. Our redemption this week is actually Sarah Weaver herself. Sarah was just the sixteen year old daughter. Uh, Randy and Vicky at the time of the standoff. She is such an inspiration after living through such a nightmare at, um, at such a young age. Sarah Weaver has really left behind the anger and really come to a place of forgiveness. Sarah said, quote, I went 10 years without understanding how to heal until becoming a born-again Christian. All bitterness and anger had to go. These days, the Weavers live near Kalispell, Montana, a city in the northwestern region part of the state, that is the gateway to Glacier National Park and more than 100 miles east of Ruby Ridge. Kalispell is so beautiful up there. Sarah had a hard time making peace with her loss until, in 2003, she had a meeting with a childhood friend from Ruby Ridge. Speaking with that friend helped her turn things around. The friend mentioned her positive relationship with Jesus Christ, and something clicked for Sarah Weaver. She said, quote, I was shocked at that. I had a fear-based relationship with God. I decided I was broken and needed to be fixed. So amazing. I didn't think about that before. But yeah, if you are reading the Bible and taking it word for word, it's definitely fire and brimstone fear-based. Yeah. So Weaver began reading the Bible under a new light, maybe the light of more love. 
and she learned that Jesus commands us to forgive and embarked on a journey that, by 2011, found her speaking to religious groups across the nation. Her journey is described in her book, From Ruby Ridge to Freedom. Sarah Weaver said, quote, The same way they stereotyped my dad and blew him up into this thing that he wasn't, I think a lot of people do that with our government as well. And when you operate out of misinformation and fear, things can go wrong. So amazing to me that she can almost see both sides of it now. I think that's incredible. Sarah strongly believes in forgiveness and turning everything over to Jesus Christ. She has forgiven those agents who pulled the trigger and killed her mother and her little brother and the best friend. They were best friends. Yeah. Sarah, Rachel, and Elisheba all live in the same area and have remained close throughout their entire lives. It's an amazing story. And that's our Rocky Mountain Redemption. She's an amazing woman. So amazing. So thank you so much for listening today. We want to remind you to follow us on our social medias. You can find us Instagram at Rocky Mountain Red Handed. On Facebook, I will get our TikTok tagged. That kind of is fun to say. I'll get that TikTok tag. I'll get that tagged. And then you can also watch us on YouTube now. So check us out over there. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. Yeah. We'll be back next Wednesday with another story to tell you straight from the Rocky Mountains. So until then, keep your hands clean. <laughs>